Hey, I'm Noble. Thanks for checking out the message today. I'm so thankful that you're here and we would love to connect with you. An easy way to do that is you can text River Connect one word to 97000. You can also go through our website and find out more about us and see what we have coming up. Lastly, if you'd like to give to the River Church, you can text an amount to 84321 or you can go to the giving tab at the top of the page. I just want to thank you for being with us today and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye now. Let's get to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter number two is where we're going to pick up. There's a few indicators in this book of the time in which the story occurs. We believe it is a a true story about real people. And in Ruth chapter number one, in verse one, the writer says this, in the days when the judges ruled. So your order of Old Testament books, you have Joshua, which is uh, the transition from Moses' leadership to his successor, Joshua, and the entrance into the promised land, And then the the people of God settle in the promised land, and then they needed some leadership structure following uh, Joshua's uh, death. And so what came on the scene was the next book of the Bible called Judges. And there was a sequence, a series of men and women who would be used by God to rescue the people out of uh, bondage, out of oppression, And what had led to that was their rebellion, their sin against God. And so Keaton mentioned this last week, but it really was a cycle, a roller coaster of really honoring the Lord, things were great. And then when things were great, forgetting the Lord, and then dishonoring the Lord, and then plunging into misery and uh, strife and trials and slavery and oppression. And then they would go to God and say, God, remember us. And then God would send a judge, and that judge would be used for a period of time, some longer periods, some shorter periods of time, to rescue the people, and then to bring stability and faithfulness to God. And then that judge would die, and then the roller coaster would continue, the cycle would continue. So the book of Ruth happens during that time, and we get that clue in chapter 1 in verse 1. And the story begins with a family. The family is Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And something potentially catastrophic has happened in their country, in their hometown. A famine has come. Now, for us, the idea of a famine is something of like a historical artifact. It's something that we, we don't really even comprehend or understand because of the way we grow food, because of the way we consume food, because of grocery stores and so on and so forth. It's not something that we even particularly maybe have a fear of. But at this time, a famine was potentially devastating to a family, to a community, to a nation. It would mean mass starvation. It would mean mass death. And so in this particular case, we see that this family, uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they decide to leave Bethlehem, their hometown, and go to the land of Moab to move away from the famine for survival. They had two sons. The first name was Malon. The other was Kilian. 
and they go off to the land of Moab. And the story kind of says from there that very early on in their time in Moab, the father dies, the patriarch dies, the one who had led them there dies. And so it seems that these two sons rise up to care for their widowed mother, Naomi, and they fall in love and they marry two uh, women, Moabite women. Um, they marry, a, first one marries a lady named Ruth, and the second one marries a lady named Orpah. And fun fact, that's actually Oprah Winfrey's real name is from this passage of Scripture, so Orpah. And so they lived there for about a decade. They had fled the famine. They were living there for 10 years. And then tragedy strikes again and seems to strike in succession because Malon and Killian both die. So now there's not just Naomi the widow, there's Orpah the widow, and there is Ruth the widow. And the last 10 years of Naomi's life have just been devastating. They had to leave their family to flee for survival. Her husband dies, which is terrible. Her sons, it seems, graciously rise up to support her and care for her, and then now they are both dead. So these three widows begin the journey back to Bethlehem. Naomi says, I'm going home. I don't know what else to do. She begins the journey home, and it seems like short, shortly into the journey, she says to her two daughters-in-law, she says, you shouldn't be coming on this journey. The Lord has dealt this way with me, and tradition would dictate that she, Naomi, would then have to have more children, uh, more sons specifically, to provide husbands for her. She says, ladies, if I were to have a baby tonight, are you going to wait till that boy is marrying age? Like, that just doesn't even work. Just leave me. Just leave me and go back to your family, find a husband, marry, have children, uh, try to redeem, try to fix, try to pick up the pieces of all of this brokenness and go forward with your life. Orpah says, okay. And the women, they weep together because they know this is a really emotional final parting. But Ruth does not. And Ruth commits to staying with her mother-in-law. And as one commentator called it, verse 16 of chapter 1 is really the high point of this short little book. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Really, in the literal Hebrew here, it's your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you are, I'll be there. It is, it's very to the point what Ruth is saying. And so they return home. They return to Bethlehem, and here Naomi comes back a very different woman, and I think we all could understand why. 
She comes back a woman who is a widow, and she comes back a woman who is really childless. And so the devastation that she is feeling is really all over her face. She comes into the town, and people are stirred up. They're like, did you hear Naomi is back? And they go to greet Naomi, and she says, listen, don't call me Naomi anymore. The Lord has dealt in a, just a bitter way. Naomi means kind of sweet, friendly, and she says, listen, I, I'm not that woman anymore. You call me Mara. I am a bitter, broken person. And that's how the story of the book of Ruth begins. Now, the end of chapter 1, in verse number 22, just the last phrase, here's another time indication. It says, and they, so meaning Ruth and Naomi, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So around April. Around April, they show back up, and the harvest, particularly of this, of barley, is in motion. So let's pick up on our text, chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan, or of their family, of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That's just kind of this, this set-up piece of information that'll come in in just a few verses to be important. Verse 2. And Ruth, though Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz. I want you to hold your spot here in Ruth and go to the left, just a few books, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 24. Deuteronomy chapter number 24. Verse number 19 is where we're going to look in a moment. But here is Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem, and Ruth takes this initiative and says, I am going to go out, and I am going to go to the fields, and I am going to glean among the ears of grain in, in a field. That's I'm going to go do this. Now, this is an, an interesting uh, setup here, because this is an Old Testament law. We see it in Leviticus, but I want to read particularly Deuteronomy Here's what Moses instructed the people many years before Ruth came on the scene. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. He instructs the people, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, so the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. So here we see immigrants orphans, and widows. And it says that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, so when you harvest from your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So within the community of Hebrews were these ways of caring for particularly poor groups of people, those who were immigrants, those who were orphans, and those who were widowed. So the rules were simply this. Listen, if you are working and you're loading some things onto maybe a cart and you are harvesting your grain and some things fall on the ground or you happen to miss a particular stalk of grain, I want you to leave it. I want you to leave it because that's God's provision for the poor. And when you leave it, I love what verse 19 says, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So you're going to leave that for the poor. Just know that God will bless you for caring for, the, caring for the poor, for being obedient to this passage of Scripture. The same when you harvest things from your olive, olives from your olive tree or grapes from your vineyard. I don't want you to go over it twice. I want you to go over it once and whatever is left there, that will be for the widow, for the orphan, and for the immigrant. This is God's way of caring for the poor. And just a, a short, small, quick point here. This is God building into his people generosity. Now, we'll see in a moment with Ruth's particular situation, they would leave the corners of the field, the edges of the field, for the poor to come and the poor to harvest. Meaning they didn't harvest the entire thing. They left portions of it to care for these particular groups of poorer people. Now, for you and I, just a a small application here. Generosity. Are we in our lives financially Time-wise, energy-wise, are we running so hot, so tight that we have no room to give or to share with others? Meaning, have we just maxed out our budget, maxed out our credit cards? We're living right at the edge and probably above our means. So when there's someone who is in dire need in our life, we can't even do anything about it. We've just run so hot, so to the limit and beyond that generosity isn't even within our capacity to do. Now let's go back to Ruth. Ruth was going to take advantage of this provision in the Mosaic law. So she was going to go and she was going to follow the workers, the workers who were going through the fields. And so she takes this initiative And verse number three, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And I love this particular phrasing here. In the ESV, it says, and she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz. Uh, The NIV says, as it turned out, the legacy standard says, as it so, and it so happened. The New Living Translation says, and it, uh, and as it happened, Literally in the Hebrew, it is her chance chanced. She happened to happen. The expositors point that out. So it's like we would put it in our terminology. It just so happened as she was taking this initiative to go out to find food. She just happened to stumble upon a part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Now, is this an accident? Of course not. This is God's divine hand. And it is really a beautiful romance 
that the Lord is putting together. Look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. I just want to pause there. For some of you, you wish your relationship with your boss was like that. Your boss showed up and said, The Lord be with you, and you responded, The Lord bless you. Right? Imagine that. This is the relationship. We can bemoan that point or regret that. But this is Boaz's relationship with his employees, with his workers. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So you can automatically see he shows up. He says to his workers, the Lord be with you. They respond, the Lord bless you. There's this beautiful, respectful relationship between Boaz and his employees. And he looks out in his field and he goes, who's that? Like, who is she? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, verse 6, says she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, now we're getting a, a, the beginning of the day. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So here's Ruth, and now we get an insight into how she's even in the field following the reapers. She went to the employees and said, please, may I follow you? Can, can I be in this field? So here she is, a respectful woman, a humble woman. She's a widow, and she's embraced this uh, this, this opportunity to work, to provide for herself, to serve her mother-in-law. She's taken the initiative. She's also shown respect to the owner of the field. Verse 7, please let me glean and gather after the sheaves among the reapers. So the employees were laying to Boaz. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, I want to put these pieces together, and we're seeing some of Ruth's character here. Look over at verse number 17. Some things are going to happen between these verses, which we'll look at in a moment. It says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. So this is a lady who has embraced a thankless job as one commentary says, in the heat of the day. And by the end of the day, she has uh, amounted an ephah, which is about 29 to 50 pounds of grain. So this woman has gone to work. So life has been rough. Here she is, a widow, and her mother-in-law is a widow. She's come to a new place she doesn't know. She woke up, she said to Naomi, let me go out. Please give me permission. I'm going to go out and I'm going to go get us some food. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to hopefully find a field that will allow me to work in. And she does just that. So we see her character of humility. We see her character of service. We see her character of work. Now just a small little note here. Men, you're single here. You're a young man and you're looking for a wife. You're looking for someone to be married to. Find a woman who knows how to work. Find a woman who has character, who has integrity, has humility, 
and knows how to get her hands dirty, who knows how to work. What a challenge that is to all of us. Ruth took this initiative. She humbled herself to a very difficult, challenging job, and she worked, verse 17 tells us, until evening. It goes even further than that. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 23. Here it is, the, the, kind of the middle phrase there. It says, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. So how long was that? She showed up in about April, and this extended, as in MacArthur says it this way, a period of intense labor for about two months. So it wasn't just a day. This wasn't just a flash in the pan. This was a consistent character of who she was. I want you to hold your spot in Ruth because I think this is an important point to just pause on for a moment. Go to the right and go to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Matter of fact, I read it every January 1st. become my rhythm to read Ecclesiastes. Very practical, lots of wisdom here. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse number 10. Solomon is writing here. And he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, or do it with all your might. Colossians, in Colossians, and you could probably write this in your notes or in the margin of your Bible there, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul would say something similar, and he would say this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Not for men. We see Ruth in a tough spot. But what do we see her willing to do? Humble herself, serve the needs of her mother-in-law, and she's willing to go to work. Now, there is a difference between going to work and being a workaholic, making work your identity, making work your God. But one of the things that Christians ought to be is Christians ought to be the most dedicated, faithful, on-time, honest, diligent employees in every business in every factory, in every office, every place that you and I work, we ought to be those things. We ought to be reliable. We ought to be dependable. The boss ought to know when we say something, we're going to do that. Our yes is yes and our no is no. And here's why. It's exactly what Colossians says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We work hard because that is honoring to the Lord. Warren Wearsby says it this way, God does not bless and guide lazy people. Those who do the task at hand will find his direction. Let's put this into practical terms. Maybe you're not in the career or in the spot right now that you want to be in long term. So you've decided until I get my dream job, I'm going to phone in life. I want you to understand this. You are dishonoring the Lord. 
You ought to be working diligently. And if you've fallen fallen into some lazy patterns, you've fallen into places where you're taking advantage of the boss, taking advantage of your situation, you ought to repent of that this morning and wake up tomorrow committed to honoring the Lord in your job. Yeah, it might not be the career or place that you want to work in forever, But tomorrow when you go to work, you ought to be the best employee there and repent. And maybe it means going to your supervisor. Maybe it means going to the boss. Maybe it means going to the owner and saying, listen, I I need to repent. I'm a Christian and I have not been working diligently. I've not been working hard. And I just want you to understand that I need your forgiveness for what I've been doing. What a gospel impact that would have. Now, this is true for Grown men, this is true for young men. Maybe you're working fast food. Maybe you're working construction. Maybe you're working a nightmare job. And I remember the worst job I ever had was working for a moving company. I'd come home from college, and I decided, okay, I'm going to make some money moving things. And so I got a job working at the moving company. It was the the, it was December, so between semesters, and I remember showing up in like a t-shirt and jeans, and here we are in the dead of winter, and I'll never forget, I have it in my mind right now, coming out of this office, rolling a filing cabinet, getting blasted by the wind and saying, I never want to do this the rest of my life. Right, maybe you're in that moment right now in your job. What does God want you to do? He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to work hard. He wants you to take that initiative. You say, well, I'm waiting on the Lord. Listen, waiting on the Lord isn't an excuse for laziness. We as believers, we work while we're waiting on the Lord. So maybe for you, that's a challenge to repent. Now, that's not even the main point of the sermon, but maybe it was for you, okay? Let's go to verse 8. So Ruth has worked all day. She's taken a short rest, and Boaz notices her. Now, is she beautiful? Maybe she's beautiful, but maybe what he notices is her initiative and her character, uh, her work ethic. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. So some believe that there was some age disparity there between them based upon that kind of greeting He says, do do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So my employees, you, you stay close to them. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So this is Old Testament, ancient Near East flirting right here. That's what it is. Okay? I feel real awkward saying that, but you just got to see it there in the passage. He's like, hey, how are you? Listen, don't go to any other field. You stay here. You stay with these ladies. You need something to drink. I got you. Right? I mean, he is just laying it on. I'll protect you. My guys are going to watch over you. So there's some cultural things there. So verse 10 Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Jen did this to me this morning, just bow to the ground. She was so thankful. Uh, Just kidding. I'm not even looking that direction because I'm going to die. 
right? So we can't westernize this too much. But this is ancient Near East um, romance. And there is also in verse 10, honor. So here is this young widow, this young immigrant widow who is finding favor with this very wealthy man who she doesn't even know the connections to yet. So she fell on her face, bound to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? Now, she doesn't know. And I think to me, as I was studying this passage of Scripture, this is the part that really was important to me. She doesn't know the end of the story. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, oh, they're aware of what's coming. They have no idea. They, they don't know. One commentator guesstimated that this story takes place over about 12 years. So think about that. The, the 10 years in Moab, maybe two years, maybe a little less, give or take, back in Bethlehem. So this is a 12-year story arc that's happening here. So she doesn't know. So she genuinely, in humility, asks Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Like, I'm not even a Hebrew by blood. Why would you take notice of me? And I love verse 11. Verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law Since the death of your husband. So think about that. Deep grief in her life. Boaz says, all that you have done since your husband died has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So the question in verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes, is answered in verse 11. And here's what's wonderful. Ruth is reaping from Boaz what she sowed with Naomi. This is this process of reaping and sowing. What do I mean by that? If you plant corn in the ground, that's the sowing process, you will reap corn. What have we seen in Ruth's character and in her life? We have seen extraordinary care for a widow, for a woman who acknowledges, I'm no longer a sweet, friendly person. I'm a bitter woman. I'm struggling with God. I'm upset about some things. I don't understand what's going on. What did Ruth do? Your people are my people. Where you're going, I'm going. And we see her confession of faith in Jehovah, God. She says, and your God is my God. I'm not going back to Moab. Verse number 12 This is what Boaz says to her. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I want you to hold your spot in Ruth. Go into the New Testament real quick to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number six. And I really hope this passage will encourage some of you this morning. Galatians chapter number six. Verse number seven. 
Paul says, do not be deceived. So he's, he's quoting an Old Testament principle, an Old Testament law, a, a spiritual law, a universal spiritual law. Do not be deceived. Verse 7, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. What did Ruth sow? She sowed care for a widow. What is she reaping now? From the Lord. Care for a widow. We see in Ruth chapter number two, you don't have to go back there, that Boaz then invites Ruth to the lunch on the farm in the field. Again, ancient Near East romance. She sits there, she eats till she's full, and then she takes some of this roasted grain and she packages it up. And we see when she gets home after a long day of working with, a, again, a, a 25 to 50 pound sack of grain carrying that she has brought food for her mother-in-law. Hey, I didn't eat all this at lunch. This is for you. So we see her service to her mother continue, her mother-in-law. She serves her as a widow. She serves her with food. Back in chapter number one, we see that Ruth left her home, her mom, her dad, in her own grief. She stayed with her grieving mother-in-law. And even Naomi says, I'm not getting pregnant again. And even if I did, even if I delivered tonight, I wouldn't have a son old enough for you to marry. Go back so you can have some semblance of a happily ever after. What does Ruth say? No, I'm going with you. Which meant I'm probably never getting married again. Galatians 6, 7. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Skip down to verse number 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season... We will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What do we see in Ruth? We see sowing and reaping and we see what Paul is referencing there. He says, in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Can I tell you a tragedy that I've had to witness that is hard to see is husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, grandmas and grandpas who give up. They throw in the towel. Because things aren't happening fast enough. You'll see husbands stop serving their wives and wives stop serving their husbands and, and moms and dads stop serving their kids and become selfish beings. And from a negative standpoint, what we sow is what we will reap. If we sow a life of selfishness, that's, as, that's what we will reap. But if we sow a life of service, we see it in Ruth, that's what we will reap. The question is, what keeps us from serving our family? I think sometimes we want to know how it's going to turn out. We want to know the end of the story. 
We want to know before we do it if it's going to be worth it. And God has called us to serving each other. He's called us to working without knowing how things work out. I, I don't want to... I don't want to be narcissistic here, so please, please forgive me if this comes across this way. But my wife faithfully loved and served me for years while I was a loser. Not a good husband, not a good father. One of the things that deeply was very difficult for her was dealing with me on a personal level as an idiot while many people thought I was wonderful. And I have experienced so much grace from her. But I watched her stay faithful to the Lord. Some of you are in that spot. And the tough thing is some of you are in that spot where your husband is um, applauded in the church, but you go home and you live with a totally different person who's unkind, who's not present, who's unfaithful, abusive. Some men that I know and I'm not trying to be rude or belligerent here. Some men I know, I applaud you because you are married to a mad woman. She's a nightmare. And I watch you stay faithful. And I, I just want you to know that, man, I see some of that, but the Lord sees all of that. He sees your faithfulness. He sees you serving Some of you are moms and dads and your children are devils. And you stay faithful and you serve and you love and you're kind. You stay in the game. The Bible says, don't give up. Like, keep serving because in due season you will reap. Your kids don't respect that. They don't understand that. They don't value that, but you stay in the game. For some of you young adults and students in middle schools, it's serving your family and your parents don't appreciate that. You stay in. Even though you don't know how it's all going to work out, it's serving without seeing the results. Maybe it's beyond your immediate family. Maybe it's your in-laws Maybe you have a very strained and challenging relationship with a father-in-law or a mother-in-law. I can't imagine Naomi was a super pleasant mother-in-law. I mean, which mother-in-law is, but you know, uh, just kidding. I can't imagine she's a joy to be around. And yet, what do you see with Ruth? You see Ruth continue to care for her. Go to work. Take that initiative. You see Ruth saving some of her lunch 
for her mother-in-law. So what's, what are we seeing here? We're seeing Ruth take initiative. We're seeing structurally that this society has created space so there's time, you know, for us the challenge, I think the practical would be creating time, emotional space, energy for generosity for other people. We're not running so hot, we don't have time for anybody else. Working hard, knowing we will not reap if we do not give up. Serving in family is really hard. Because it comes with a lot of baggage, a lot of history, a lot of emotions, some disappointment. So when we want to give up, or when we want to know how best to serve, we look to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, you can just jot this down in your notes. Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate act of service is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that 10,000 times 10,000 angels surround his throne and sing night and day. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the Son of God, the, the, the center of heaven's worship, stepped from heaven and became a man. Fully God, fully man, what a perplexing mystery that is. And he lives a perfect life And then around 33 years of age, he goes to the cross and there he is crucified. He's executed. And it's on the cross that God pours out the punishment for sin on his perfect son. The Bible says so, just beautifully, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And how did God give his only begotten son? The son obeyed the father and laid down his life and the father poured out all hell, the fury of hell, the punishment for sin upon his only begotten son. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So the sinless, the sinless one suffers for the sinner. And there the wrath for sin is poured out upon Christ and he dies. He's buried three days later. He triumphantly rises from the dead. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To pay the penalty for sin for many. That's what I came to do. So when you and I feel so reluctant to serve our spouse or our kids or our in-laws or family members that drive us crazy, rather than just trying to 
you know, find the gumption in and of ourselves. Let's fix our eyes on Christ. This is what it means to have gospel-centered serving in our family. How beautiful is it when we think about Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were like, hey, Jesus, I know you're going to the cross. I just want to pause and thank you. Before you go, I want to sing this song to you. Like, no, Jesus is going to the cross, and humanity is spitting on him, calling him names, belittling him, cheering for his death, mocking him in his death. And Jesus is dying for the very people that are killing him. That's the service, the sacrificial service of Christ. And that is what inspires us. Yes, Ruth is an inspiring character, but Jesus is the ultimate servant who serves us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead and offering us the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. That's what Jesus has done for you. We, in turn, serve one another. I want you to do this across the room. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Just for a moment, I want you to just stay engaged with maybe what the Lord is speaking or doing in your heart. Maybe you're here right now and you are not a follower of Jesus. Meaning you've heard the gospel today, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and you you just don't know how to respond to that. What's that mean for you? The Bible says in Romans 10.9, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's, that's the gospel message, and that's how you respond. You repent, meaning you turn from sin and you turn to Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Maybe for you, that's what the Lord is doing in your heart right now. You're sitting in this room, you're watching online. Maybe for others in here, you are reluctant to serve in your family. It's hard. You don't know how the story ends. You don't feel appreciated. There's no gratitude for what you do. I want to encourage you, husbands and wives, fathers, and particularly mothers, to stay the course. To stay the course. To continue to serve as Christ has served you. To be rooted in gospel-centered serving in your family. Maybe right now you just need to speak to the Lord. Maybe it was one of the, some of those secondary points you need to repent of. Maybe you become lazy at work. Maybe you become lazy at home and you're a father here and you are no longer the chief servant at home. And you need to repent of that today.
right now you can speak to the Lord. Oh, the work that the Lord would do in our homes if we were faithfully serving one another. Maybe you're here and you need to be baptized today. We've had some incredible baptisms over the last few weeks and maybe the Lord's been moving your heart to do that. In a moment, I'm gonna pray and you can walk right through those curtains to my left. If you got someone with you that wants to be baptized or if you want to be baptized and you got a friend with you, ask them to just come with you just to walk back with you. Not so they can be baptized, but you just want to have a friend with you. But you can walk right through those curtains. There'll be some really nice folks back there that'll chat with you. We got some shorts and t-shirts and towels and we'd love to help you follow the Lord in obedience in that area of your life today. Jesus, thank you for your love kindness and service to us, Lord. I pray that that would inspire us, Lord, that that would stir us up to serve one another, particularly in the context of our family, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.